This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue, opening the minds to the public, to what takes place in reality, as opposed to what you think takes place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast. Here's your host, Dominic Crea. Hello, listeners. Hope everybody's doing well. For today's episode, I recommend watching it and listening to it on YouTube, as there I will be bringing up some documents that you may wish to look at and follow along to. It'll be available on all the platforms. However, I believe on YouTube will be the ideal experience for this particular episode. Today I'm going to talk about a Rule 33 submission that was put in October on behalf of defendants Christopher Landanio, Matthew Madonna, Stephen L. Crea, Terrence Caldwell, and the Rule 33 submission on a federal level is a request for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, whereas the newly discovered evidence impacted the ability for the defense to put on the ideal and optimum strategy available with regards to the evidence, or the information I should say, that was readily available to the team at the time. So now that new information had come to light, it changes the game a little bit. Have, if the defense was aware of this prior, the entire strategy and a lot of calls that were made during trial would have changed, uh, would have been impacted, hence affecting the outcome of the trial. So whenever something comes to light after the fact, it's newly discovered, and if, it, if the severity of it had a impact on how the defense team chose chose to strategize or which witnesses they chose to call or how they were able to impeach a witness or explore their true character any of those factors and in this case once we go through it you're gonna see that a lot of the things that came to fruition after the trial would have had a tremendous impact for trial and therefore it's a severe issue it's cause for concern and it's cause for the judge to make a ruling on it. And in this particular case, what happens is our submission was put in on October 4th. The prosecution has till December 5th, I believe, to respond. Then the defense has a rebuttal response and then the judge will decide whether to have a hearing or to rule based on the submitted memos. And that's probably going to play out mid to late January, so we'll see how that goes. So with that said, let me bring up the actual document. Again, this was filed on October 4th on behalf of the defendants. And this is all available on PACER if somebody wants to pull the actual document and have a read. Let me get to where I want to start outlining. I'm not going to obviously go through this entire thing. It's a massive submission, 121 pages. In addition, there was over 500 pages submitted 
uh, as part of the submission, which were exhibits, uh, transcripts, and whatnot. Now, with this submission, I want to start with the introduction, whereas it's just basically outlines, it's explaining to the judge that this is a memorandum of law, all the defense teams submitted jointly, so everybody's part of this. And the, the basis of it, as I'm going to read, as detailed below, the newly discovered and or untimely disclosed Brady and or 3500 material sufficiently undermines three central elements of the government's theory of liability with respect to the charged homicide of Michael Meldish. Uh, so there's two components to it, really. You have the newly discovered evidence, which is going to be surrounded a lot by podcasts and and disclosures made by the informants that came out after trial and were not known prior. And there's an untimely disclosed Brady and or 3500 material. What happened with that was the defense team was given audio conversations of informant David Evangelista when he was in jail. We were given those tapes a year after the trial ended. And on those tapes, as you're going to see when I highlight that, there was substantial information regarding character and regarding crimes that this informant was committing while in custody. Had we known that, our line of questioning, our investigation on the witness would have been entirely different. And what happened was the, the government gave it to us a year later and basically made it like, ah, here you go, it's really not that important, it's a year late. Even though we're supposed to give all this before trial because it's Brady material, we're giving it a year late and it really has no impact, don't worry about it. Well, we beg to differ and that's part of the purpose of the Rule 33 submission. Now the three points that this entire submission is going to question are the three points of contention and focus that the government had. It was that A, that a murder required the knowledge and approval of the Lucchese family leadership, including Mr. Madonna and Mr. Crea. B, that the murder was committed by and on behalf of the Lucchese family. And C, that the murder was committed by Mr. Caldwell and Mr. Londonio. So the evidence that came to light after the fact very strongly contradicts those claims by the government. In addition, the new evidence would have impeached the credibility of critical, of critical prosecution witnesses with respect, respect to both substantive aspects of the case and the witnesses' bias against the defendants. The new evidence was discovered after trial only because of either the government's untimely post-trial production or public statements made by its cooperating witness, John Panisi and Frank Pesquale III, on multiple podcasts and other forums and in recorded telephone, conversation, uh, telephone calls by cooperating witness David Evangelista while he was detained in the Metropolitan Center in Brooklyn and submissions filed in connection with his sentencing. Prior to those disclosures, the information and materials were under the exclusive control of the government and or its cooperating witnesses. Right here, we are saying that due to the untimely delivery of those telephone calls, which was a year later, and due to the statements made by John Panisi and Frank Pesquale III, it contradicts a lot of what took place during trial and statements made during trial 
and it was all discovered after the fact. That's just outlining what came to pass and how it's going to impact trial. We're setting the stage for, for that argument. As discussed below, the, newly, the new information is material because it both contradicts the important aspects of the government's case listed above and supports defendants' contention that they did not commit or approve or play any role in Mr. Meldish's murder. The new evidence also is of a character that disputes the government's evidence and theory and impeaches critical government witnesses in a manner not accomplished by other evidence and information possessed previously by the defendants. So right here we're saying based on what came to light after the fact, after trial, it changed the game. We would have been able to impeach the witnesses on other items of severe importance. We would be able to expose the character of these informants in a greater way towards the jury so they could see really what they're all about. Without having that information prior to trial, they handcuffed the defense team. It only came out after the fact. So it's a big problem and it deserves a new trial. For example, the new information substantially and directly vitiates the accuracy of the expert testimony upon which the government so heavily relied to claim that the Lucchese family hierarchy had to approve Mr. Meldish's murder and repudiates the sources the government cited as the basis for the experts' contentions, including Mr. Panisi's testimony. Right here, what we're saying is this. On all organized crime cases, they'll bring in what's called an, ex an, ec an expert. The expert will sit in front of the jury and talk about organized crime, talk about how things work, talk about the hierarchy, the rules, and whatnot. Now, the jury have, relies heavily on the expert. They, they believe they're an expert in that field, and how they say it is the reality of it. There's one problem with that. After trial, John Panisi and Frank Pesqua III made statements that contradict the expert. Now, John Panisi is an alleged made member, so what he says completely contradicts what the expert the government put on the stand was saying in many respects, which we'll get into. So if an alleged made member is contradicting what the government's expert is saying, that's a problem. The jury is not... If we were able to expose that and show the contradictions, the jury would have then said, well, maybe that's not how it takes place. We have a alleged made member saying something completely different than the expert, and they would not have given the expert that much validity, and it would have changed the game. It would have changed the narrative big time. Goes on to say, Mr. Evangelista's recorded conversations, as well as representations by him and the government in the context of his sentencing, present a very different portrait of Mr. Evangelista than he and the government contrived for purposes of his testimony. Right here we're saying what we discovered after the fact based on the phone calls and based on information that came to light on social media and other avenues, it was a complete contradiction of the character of Mr. Evangelista that the government had portrayed during trial and that he had portrayed during trial. And if we were aware of these telephone calls, we would have been able to explore that and enlighten the jury about how this guy operates. And you will, as it goes on to say, rather than a rehabilitated felon looking to redeem himself through cooperation, 
which was the way the government painted him, Mr. Evangelista instead remained the same conniving criminal he had been beforehand, engaging in continuing criminal conduct, manipulating the cooperation process, harboring bias against defendants, and seizing the opportunity to act on it, and suffering from mental health issues that alone would render his testimony wholly unreliable. So we're, we're following up to expose that the information that is now available would really expose what type of person this Mr. Evangelista was. He was a continued criminal. You're going to see he was trying to extort an inmate's wife. He was dealing drugs. He was lying. He was arguing with actually his, uh, his, uh, his handlers where he was saying they wanted to hit him with perjury or the government, I should say. Uh, the prosecution apparently wanted to hit him with perjury. There was a lot he was discussing on these tapes that is very important to the case and very important to the strategy of the case that if the defense was made aware of it, a lot of approaches would have changed and a lot of investigation would have changed and strategy would have changed. Goes on to say, moreover, the new evidence demonstrates that the government did not fulfill its discovery and Brady obligations with respect to Mr. Pesqua. As a vital information regarding Mr. Pesqua's account of Mr. Meldish's murder and his participation therein, as well as other essential information about Mr. Pesqua's criminal activity in connection with organized crime, which information would have materially affected the decision whether to call Mr. Pesqua as a defense witness, was withheld and or misrepresented. Right here we're saying during trial, the prosecution changed their mind at the last minute about calling Pesqua. Now if we, because, let me get into that a little bit, what they had said at prior bail hearings, Pesqua gave a crazy story that said he was, well I shouldn't say crazy, I mean this is, again it's a contradictory, the whole thing is what's the truth, what's going on, that's really the bottom line, what's accurate, what's not. And, and and the purpose of that is the guy's just a liar. He's lying about his dad. He's lying about the family. He's lying about everything. His whole his whole uh, life's a lie, which I was able to show in my other episode focused on him with the dash cam. But that's another story. So he tells one lie. Then I guess what happened was at the bail hearing, the government, because the judge questioned them on this, and the judge said, well, wait a minute. If he's saying he was on the scene, we need to be aware of that. And why is he saying that now? Why is he changing? The judge was confused. And the prosecution responded by saying, no, 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 he was just mistaken. That's all. He was just mistaken. He now realizes he was mistaken, which is key. They said he now realizes he's mistaken. That wasn't what happened. The judge bought that, and then we weren't really able to dive into that and explore that because they chalked it up to, oh, well, he messed up. He got everybody indicted. He was part of the grand jury, but he messed up now, so it's okay. Well, what's ironic about that, if the government is saying that he realized he messed up, after the trial was over, he goes on two podcasts and doubles down on his crazy story. So he obviously didn't think he messed up or changed his mind. He's sticking to it. He's doubling it down. So somebody's not being truthful. Either he didn't recount it, the government didn't understand what was going on. Something's not right because he's pushing that story and that's very important because if the defense was aware that that was the story he was pushing and he was a witness to this crime or he was involved in this crime, obviously it would have changed the entire ball game. He would have been called. He would have been cross-examined. It would have been a whole different level of defense. 
goes on to say the government's representation the defendants and the court that Mr. Pasqua had recanted his prior admission of his and his father's role in Mr. Meldish's murder, including that they were present on the scene the night Mr. Meldish was murdered and committed the crime, and that he and his father, not the defendants charged in this matter, had murdered Meldish on the same night, has been refuted by Mr. Pasqua's multiple statements since trial. Again, that's him doubling down on his podcast, telling his tale of what happened. Now remember, this is the guy who was responsible for the grand jury indictment, one of the main individuals who, based on his testimony, they received the indictment. Contrary to the prosecution's materially misleading disclosure about Mr. Pesqua's version of events, the new evidence confirms that Mr. Pesqua has maintained that he was present with his father and Mr. Meldish at the time the murder occurred. Had this information, rather than the deflection of a retraction, been disclosed, the prospect of an alternative perpetrator would have been viable and consequently defense strategy at, def at trial and its presentation to the jury would have been altered materially. That is simply saying, if we knew that he was pushing this and sticking to this and not changing it as the government said, which they were allowed to get away with, and the judge agreed and said, okay, no big deal, we would have explored this, focused on this, and our strategy would have relied heavily on this one aspect as it relates to him being present for the crime, him taking part in it, him being a witness, whatever. It would have been a whole new avenue to explore, investigate, and expose. And we were stripped of that based on the government's disclosure where they retracted. However, the witness didn't retract it, so that wasn't accurate. He didn't retract it. He went on podcasts and kept talking about it. So he's sticking to his story, and we needed to, to be aware of that and not told, oh, he changed his story when that's clearly not true. goes on to say the unique and fundamental nature of the new evidence that challenges the testimony of Mr. Panisi and Mr. Evangelista and casts Mr. Pasqua's value to the defense in an entirely new light is not cumulative as it pr provides both substantive evidence countering the government's case as well as devastating impeachment of those witnesses on matters not penetrable by information available at the time of cross-examination. This is saying that due to the fact we didn't have this information prior to trial, it changes the game completely. It changes the cross-examination. It, it changes the avenues taken to impeach witnesses and the information on a whole. The information as to what took place the night of this murder. Who was there? Who wasn't there? Was this guy on the street as he claims? Was he taking part of his claims? Why, why, is that, why is that just coming to light now? How is that just coming into play after trial that he's sticking to this story and telling every podcast that he was he was part of it he was a witness to it and yet he wasn't uh, and yet the government said no he changed his story and the judge said okay then being he changed it all good the defense can't go down that road and ask about that well, you understand the dilemma there you understand the severity of that right This is going to break down the statement of facts, and I want to highlight this. Accordingly, because defendant's possession of the newly discovered evidence would have resulted in an acquittal, and or because the timely production of either Brady or 3500 material would have produced a different result at trial, it is 
respectfully submitted that defendant's Rule 33 should be granted and a new trial ordered. So we're asking the judge, we're saying because of all this information, it would have changed the game completely, resulted in an acquittal, so the defendants are entitled to a new trial. This cannot be overlooked. Statement of facts. This goes into the statement of facts attached to the Rule 33 submission. So we're going to start with post-trial disclosures related to government witness John Panisi. So these are things that John Panisi said after trial that were not part of 3500s, were not part of any of the uh, information we obtained on the informant, were not part of what was talked about during trial, were nowhere to be found. And as you know, when you're preparing for trial, you're supposed to have everything relevant in the 3500 material, in the 302s, everything re relevant to that informant should be on display so the defense can investigate it, explore it, expose it, cross-examine on it. Without information, you're handcuffing the defense yet again. You're blinding them. You're limiting their ability to see the entire picture, and you're limiting the ability of the jury to see the entire picture. And this goes on to talk about the issues impacting John Panisi. Since the conclusion of trial, government witness at trial, John Panisi has appeared on at least 75 podcasts during which he had discussed generally his criminal history, his association with, the, with and membership in organized crime families, as well as specific matters directly relevant to his testimony regarding the charges in this case. Now these are the items based on what his disclosures on podcast that changed the game as it relates to the trial. As detailed below during the course of those podcasts, Mr. Panisi has revealed information entirely at odds with his testimony and the government's theory of the case. So basically what he said on the podcast contradicts testimony and the government's theory on the case itself including, one, whether in the context of La Cosa Nostra and the Lucchese family specifically, leadership approval was required for acts of violence. Two, whether being a member of organized crime family was necessarily com commensurate, commensurate with being in the know with respect to its activities. Three, his prior criminal history, particularly with respect to acts of fraud, violence, and the use of firearms. Four, his bias against defendants, particularly Mr. Madonna, and Mr. Crea because he blamed the Lucchese family for threats and plots against his life. Five, his capacity for deception and prevarication. Six, his mental instability. The podcast ultimately impugned not only Mr. Panisi's testimony, but also that of the government's expert. And that's what I was saying before, when they contradict each other, that's a problem. United States Attorney's Office Special Agent John Carrillo, with respect to the convention's of organized crime families. The podcasts also demonstrate that Mr. Panisi failed to disclose to the government or the government withheld evidence of the full range and nature of his criminal past. So again, things were left out that the defense wasn't aware of. And in layman's terms, you're not supposed to be allowed to do that, right? You got to give them everything so they could defend properly. But as we see, it happens time and again, and then it falls on the defense to discover it and say, hey, you didn't give us this. So it really goes to show how scary it is and how they could just slip things in, leave things out. And whether or not it's the government, and I'm sure a lot of it's even the informants, they're not telling them everything. Because why? 
because these guys lie. That's the bottom line. They lie. Okay. Murder and violence do not require leadership approval. That's our, one of our talking points in regards to what Panisi had said. During several podcasts, Mr. Panisi revealed that a made member in La Cosa Nostra does not need to seek permission from the administration to injure or kill an associated civilian. See Exhibit 1, and that's the transcript, that's the citation that we attach, that's the exhibit with the transcript, and uh, we give little pieces of that within this memo, and then the entire transcript is attached as an exhibit. So you'll see that popping up here and then, the different exhibit numbers and citations. And a lot of the citations also have to do with the trial, because we want the judge to compare, and you'll see uh, Exhibit 1, trial at 5-7, that's telling the the judge where she could pull the trial minutes and compare it to the podcast uh, statements to highlight the contradictions. Mr. Panisi cited a number of examples, including a podcast that aired February 22nd, 2021, and there's the exhibit, and April 20th, 2021. Mr. Panisi's own plan to attack and perhaps kill, and I redacted this person's name, I just don't like bring in, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable. I try to redact where I can. If somebody has nothing to do with a situation, uh, I'm not into bringing their name into it. So he, he was planning to attack and kill somebody, two people, and another man who happened to be accompanying, accompanying the first person at the time. And here's an excerpt in the uh, footnotes. We have the excerpts. In describing his plan, Mr. Panisi recounted that, this is his quote, what we were going to do was we were going to lay in the cut, get the place, and ambush him. And, you know, it wasn't going to go well for, and he says the gentleman's name, and it wasn't going to go well for, and he says the other individual involved name. And we would have we would have left them, both of them, there, right in the parking lot, and we would have left. And that was said on NBA in the Button Man, February 22nd, 2021, and that's part of the... Uh, submission and part of the trial transcripts, uh, part of the transcripts, I'm sorry, not the trial transcripts, the podcast transcripts. In another podcast, Mr. Panisi, now, just allow me, the reason why this is important, what he's saying is contradicting the expert. What he's now saying and telling a podcast is contradicting the government's theory and the government's expert. And the jury relied heavily on the expert to set the tone on how things are supposed to work. And now this alleged made member is contradicting what the experts said. And none of this was brought up at trial. This contradicting wasn't brought up at trial. These things, this this crime that he was going to commit, this assault and this possible murder was never mentioned. Never mentioned in the 302s, never mentioned anywhere. So it's very important information. In another podcast, Mr. Panisi was asked with respect to acts of violence, including murder, who could make the call on their own and push down that, that order? Mr. Panisi answered, Basically, it could come from the administration down. I mean, and it could be with, you know, it could come from anybody in the administration. It could come from a captain. It could come from a friend himself. I mean, we, you know, we spoke about, we did an episode about, and he says the gentleman's name. This kind of came from us, me, myself, and you know that it could come from a friend himself too. So the reason why this is vital, he's saying you could kill or assault anybody without any input from the administration. That completely contradicts the government's theory that they outlined to the juror, where they said, no, it has to go this way, it has to go to the administration. Here you have a made member saying anybody can make the call, a made member, a captain, the, anybody can make the call. It's a big contradic 
contradiction, and it's a huge impact on the trial and how the defense would have proceeded. That kind of came from us. He's talking about his planned assault and possible murder. That kind of came from us, me, myself, and you know that. It could come from a friend himself, too. Now, when he says a friend on his show, he explained that when he refers to a friend, he's talking about an alleged maid member. So right there, he's saying it could come from anybody, from a maid member to a captain to an administration. It does not have to be passed down from the administration. Now, this is a maid member saying that, an alleged maid member, and it uh, is contradicting with their, what the government's expert explained in length during trial. Here we have another citation. It was two podcasts, it looks like. One was the NBA and Button Man from March 28th, 2021. The other was the Hootie and JC show from April 20th, 2021. Panisi further revealed that the attempted murder of Enzo Stagno, charged in the indictment in count four, was not sanctioned by the Lucchese family, but instead was committed by Mr. Meldish without authorization, as it would not have been approved given the potential repercussions between the Lucchese and Bonanno families. Uh, and here we have a new theory podcast citation, December 13th, 2020. And it looks like on the podcast it was stated because you could start you could start a war between two families, right? So now he definitely didn't get permission to do that. And if he did, no one is going to admit it. So it's just like he had no permission to do that. Most likely he seeked revenge on his own. So again, another instance of a contradiction of what the expert for the government said. Here's somebody else apparently authorizing just going and trying to kill somebody without any any knowledge from anybody else, from the administration, from anybody else. So again, contradicting the government's expert, which the jury relied heavily on. Another footnote where we're referring to another exhibit, NBA and the Button Man, February 22nd, 2021. You're going to have people that dot their I's and cross their T's, and then you're going to have people that don't. And you know whether we call them hotheads or not, you know it all depends on who you're dealing with and what the situation is. And so sometimes you don't go by protocol, you just act. You know, and as a friend, you can do that. Very important right there. As a friend, you could do that. Again, contradicting the entire narrative laid out by the government's expert, which the jury relied heavily on as far as how things work and how they tried tying in many of the defendants in the case. They tried tying them in based on the government's theory, and now you have an alleged made member contradicting that. Even Mr. Panisi was targeted for violence without approval. During an August 11, 2021 podcast, he revealed that another alleged member of the Lucchese family, and I redacted the gentleman's name, whose name was mentioned often during trial, had initially coordinated the alleged attempt Mr. The attempted murder of Mr. Panisi without obtaining permission from the Lucchese administration. And again, we're citing the trial exhibit with his testimony versus the NBA Button Man podcast, August 11, 2021. Mr. says the gentleman's name, didn't get permission for that, but was acting on his own, said John Panisi. According to Mr. Panisi, permission is required only when the intended victim is a member of LCN, and even in those instances, as he claims with respect to 
that person's name, plot against him, and on those members he intended to exact revenge as a result, an attack could still be carried out by that member on the sneak. We quoted Mr. Panisi, without seeking permission or without needing to seek permission, if the circumstances permitted, i.e. the target was labeled a rat or was a civilian. Again, see Exhibit 1, which is the trial transcript. Mr. Panisi revealing that that individual did not have permission to attempt to murder him. So again, he highlights an example of somebody else without any kind of permission was going to murder him, just on their own. Uh, exhibit 4, again the trial transcript, Mr. Panisi revealing he had self-ordered an attempted assault murder of, we left the name out, see Exhibit 45, NBA Man Podcast, May 18th, 2021, Mr. Panisi revealing he threatened to murder a civilian whom he claimed was lurking on his street and that he did not need permission to do so. Uh, the exhibit is Gary Jenkins' podcast, March 19th, 2021. Uh, and we cite another exhibit, uh, NBA and Buttman podcast, August 3rd, 2021, after Mr. Panisi revealed during a prior podcast that he was made aware that lawyers were monitoring his post-trial statements in relation to the case. He answered no comment when responding to question about whether permission is needed to kill a civilian. So after he apparently was aware that the defense team was monitoring the podcast, he changed his response to no comment. Let's move this over a little bit. Members of LCN are not necessarily in the know. That's our point B that we're making, and then we follow it up with the information to support that claim. Mr. Panisi also revealed that membership in the Lucchese family did not amount to being, quote, in the know regarding the enterprises or its members' activity. Moreover, serious matters such as murders were not typically discussed by anyone. Mr. Panisi explained the dynamic as follows in the context of the charges in this case. So he goes on to explain, uh, these are excerpts from John Panisi, and like I told you, you know, here is something that people don't understand, you know, this obviously because of the people they, they charged came out of the Bronx, right? So the Bronx is not going to tell the Brooklyn faction, hey, by the way, you know what we're going to do, just like we're not going to tell them things. So he's just highlighting how not everybody's in the know, and it's not, he contradicts the expert once again, whereas it has to be handed down by members of the administration, has to follow a certain protocol. This alleged member, Mr. Panisi, contradicts that. People don't understand, they think like everybody's in the know, and you don't have to be that way. You don't have to be in the know of what other crews are doing. Here we highlight in... Section C, Mr. Panisi, pervasive bias against the Lucchese family. So this is his bias against the family that was relevant. If we were aware of these things to cross-examination, they could have been ex explored and highlighted during trial. During several podcasts, Mr. Panisi acknowledged his deep bias against the Lucchese family and its personnel. His reasons were made quite clear. He alleged the Lucchese family had on multiple occasions dispatched assassins to kill him, but the, he, that he had fended them off with a firearm. See Exhibit Hootie and the JC Show, April 8th, 2021. 
Prior to that, they sent this car to my house and started sitting on me. I chased them with a pistol in Levittown, Long Island. They started doing, what they started doing was they started now trying to send more guys. It was one group and then there was individuals. Every person that they sent, I chased away with a pistol. Every one of them. So he was chasing everybody away. Nobody got a shot fired off of, with these apparent multiple attempts. He chased everybody. And that's a fact. I was carrying it in a knapsack. He said that on the Bobby Luisi show, May 14, 2021. And just to highlight, uh, Bobby Luisi was a felon, and he was talking to multiple felons on these podcasts, which is an issue in of itself. As I've explained on prior episodes, when a defendant is put on supervised release, they can't have any contact with any felons. They can't talk to them, have dinner, anything, no lunch, nothing. But yet... Um, those rules don't apply to informants, I guess, in their supervised release conditions. They could go on different shows, interact with felons without any issue. Um, I start chasing guys with a pistol, their own guys, and chasing them all away, right? I went on myself, got a pistol by myself, and was chasing the guys that the mob sent to me away, chasing them in the street. His pistol became Mr. Panisi's constant companion. When someone was laying on my house, I didn't go to the FBI, put a pistol in my waistband, and went after them and walked around with a pistol on me. Went to meetings with a pistol on me. Met with captains, met with guys. Because if you admire gangsters, then you must have admired me. Because what I did, like a gangster, was put a fucking pistol in my waistband. So I guess he wants everybody to know he's a gangster who carries a pistol. Alright, got it. Uh, another exhibit, NBA in the Buttman podcast, August 15, 2021. Mr. Panisi also accused the Lucchese family of taking, Lucchese family of tasking members of the blood gangs to kill him at his job site and that he successfully chased them away in the middle of Manhattan. Mr. Panisi recollected in the May 14, 2021 podcast that they're sending bloods. I'm in the pearly white neighborhood. I'm in a pearly white neighborhood. There's a guy with dreadlocks and a red, a red, I'm saying I can't even believe it. I'm chasing these guys, Mr. Panisi continued. At my job in Manhattan, down 7th Avenue, I'm chasing five, six black guys. Blood's in the street that they sent. So all these guys were sent and not one shot was fired. That's either extremely lucky or extremely uh, full of you-know-what. Uh, another exhibit, and now they're starting, they start sending people, and I, with my pistols, start chasing, start chasing the people away, and in the city, they even send members of Bloods, they sent about four or five Bloods to where I work, I chased them in the middle of Manhattan with my hand in my knapsack, all through down 7th Avenue and everything else. A little footnote, Panisi recognized that as a felon, there was a serious potential legal consequence resulting from his possession of a firearm, yet he still chose to carry a pistol in New York City. Mr. Panisi also retained his text messages with Lucchese family personnel, which data was not produced to the defense. So he said he got text messages. We never received those messages. They weren't any of the uh, 3500s, weren't mentioned in any of the 302s, so this was news to us. We would like to obviously have seen that, investigate that, and explore that. Through which he communicated his, his, his withdrawal from the organization. Got a little tongue-tied. You know, I saved the texts. I have the texts. Mr. Panisi also threatened members of the Lucchese family and explicitly warned them he would kill them if they approached him. 
the Bobby Luisi show, May 14, 2021. From this day on, tell nobody, this is John Panisi talking, from this day on, tell nobody, don't even approach me to say hello to me because I'm going to light them up because I know something's going on. I don't want nobody approaching me. I don't want nobody approaching me. And that's it. That's right. I'm carrying a pistol and that's it. And I'm going to hurt somebody because I'm going to take it like they're hurting me. Mr. Panisi never forgave the Lucchese family or its personnel for their alleged actions against him. Uh, citation NBA and the Button Man, May 26, 2021. And the government cultivated and exploited that resentment. So here we're showing how the government kind of pushed that and really drove the point home to Panisi to, to exploit it and make sure he understood that. During multiple podcasts, Mr. Panisi revealed that before he testified, FBI agents and prosecutors aided him in self-verifying his perception that the Lucchese family was trying to kill him and that his consequent distress was not based on any mistake or delusion that anyone else was responsible. So what he's saying is the FBI confirmed, yeah, they were trying to kill you, almost putting flames on the fire, so to speak, really getting him to resent resent people and therefore have an agenda to make up stories about the people involved and we've all heard it we've all heard it we see comments a lot of people say that oh that must have been a law enforcement that was sitting on you by your house and oh what did you turn what did you turn over law enforcement you made a mistake and you got delusional or you're paranoid or what have you and you know no one ever wants to admit to that but you know it was just good to get his perspective because of his former position with law enforcement so he's talking about his conversation i believe with that gary jenkins where he asked him what he thought as well about the situation and i believe that gary jenkins was prior law enforcement and who better to give an answer than him gary jenkins and to be honest with you the agents themselves said the same thing so now he's saying that the agents told him the exact same thing that yeah that was that was members of the lucchese family trying to get you they said you know we wouldn't have we would have never let you you know carry on like that we would have stopped you and we would have identified ourselves so they're telling him that if it was law enforcement they would identify themselves and it was definitely who he thought trying to to get him stoking the fire basically now a citation whereas um on the hootie and jc show april 13 2021 mr panisi also reported how a prosecutor amplified that perception to a personalized reference and he goes on this is mr panisi talking on the podcast the prosecutor the U.S. attorney said that he was looking to prepare for trial and was looking on his laptop and his wife seen the picture. So now this is a prosecutor giving Panisi, according to him, a story about his wife, a personal story about the prosecutor's wife in relation to the picture on his laptop of Panisi. And she said to him, what happened to that guy? Because you could see it on my face. I have the picture, right? You could see something's wrong. I'm very puzzled when I came out. He's talking about he came out from a, from a wake and he had a weird feeling that people, his, people in the wake were against him or looking to do something to him. And he said, you know, he explained my situation. So he's telling the story that the prosecutor explained the situation to his wife. 
And she, so he's telling me this story, he says, and she said that reminds me of the picture of your father. And he explained what the picture was. He said, he said his father was misdiagnosed with cancer, but before he knew it was a misdiagnosis, he's thinking that he has cancer because he was told he had cancer. And he was sitting on his porch and someone took a picture of him. There was a parade going by the father's house with elephants. The father was in another world like looking into another world with his head down. She compared that picture of that guy thinking he was dying to me because I didn't think I was dying because I didn't know what the rumor, I didn't know what the hell was going on. But it was so heavy on my mind that the agents happened to catch that picture of me. And you could see the picture says a thousand words of what was on my face. I was so puzzled. I knew something was wrong. But that confirmed it when I went to that wake. And it was bad. It was bad. Thus, by stoking Mr. Panisi's perception that the Lucchese family was seeking to kill him, the government actively contributed to Mr. Panisi's bias against defendants, particularly Mr. Madonna and Mr. Crea, who were alleged by Mr. Panisi to be among the organization's hierarchy. Point D, Mr. Panisi's unstable and delusional mental state. The government's conduct compounded the fact that Given Mr. Panisi's mental health history, his fears of the Lucchese family's intentions could well have constituted unwarranted paranoia. In describing the events influencing his decision to cooperate, Mr. Panisi cited the alleged attempts on his life as well as a supernatural intervention by his deceased grandparents. And that was on NBA and the Button Man, April 13, 2021. During that podcast, Mr. Panisi ingenuously recounted the sign he received that he should cooperate with the government. Again, this was not made available to the defense. This is a very important aspect that the defense would have wanted to explore and highlight during trial, during cross-examination, for the jury to weigh it. Not saying whether, listen, it's irrelevant if I think the paranoid normal event is weird or I don't believe it, that's irrelevant. The point is, this is something that the jury should have heard, and then it's up to them to decide what kind of credibility they give to it or don't. But it is an important aspect. According to him, this is what caused him to decide to cooperate and to make up lies, really. I know we're not supposed to ask for a sign, and I'm praying to my grandparents. Just give me a sign that what um is the right thing, and then if I don't get a sign, I'll just do it on my own. So he was relying heavily on this sign, whether or not to become an informant. And I just keep trying to, you know, run around with the pistol and make the best of it, right? I had dishes, you know, glasses. I had a baker's rack with wine glasses and all kinds of extra, you know, dishes and everything. I had to call my mother up and make her listen to it. It was like there was an earthquake. Not for 10 minutes. I'm talking about for hours. Ding, 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 ding. All the dishes, all the glasses, everything was binging. Like ding, 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 ding. But I call my mother. I say, I says, you're not going to listen to this. She says, what is that? I says, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I did. She says, oh my God, I hear it. Like an earthquake, right? So apparently everything was shaking for hours. And his grandparents gave him this sign to cooperate by rattling everything in his house. 
uh, this highlights certain points. I had dishes and everything in the cabinet, you know, and there was no earthquake or nothing like that. And the whole, all you heard was ding, 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 ding for hours, Bobby. I called my mother up and I said, listen to this. She said, oh my God, I got the chills right now. She said, and you know, that was my sign, you know. Nor is Mr. Panisi's mental instability and clinical paranoia based on his conduct and his claims of dishware shaking for hours and idle observation. During an April 12, 2021 podcast, he confided that he suffered from a chemical imbalance and that he initially failed to take medication prescribed by medical professionals to address this condition. While he eventually took the prescribed medication, he stopped after he was released in 2007. So, so here we have a self-admitted, self-diagnosed individual who has a problem and needs medication to balance them and keep their head straight and keep their thoughts clear. And he hasn't taken any medication since 2007. So he was allowed to testify without anybody being aware of this, anybody being aware that he was off his meds, not taking his recommended medication. That should have been a point that the jury should have been made aware of. This is, in his own words, saying he should have been on meds and he wasn't. Segment E, Mr. Panisi's undisclosed violent conduct and criminal history. So these are items that came to light that the defense weren't aware of in regards to his violent co conduct and criminal history. And the defense needs to be aware of that on all witnesses so they could perhaps impeach, cross-examine, uh, strategize based on it. And we were stripped of that right yet again. During several podcasts, Panisi convinced confessed that he had committed additional crimes but was un unable to disclose them at this time because it would get him, quote, into big trouble, into a big problem. I'm sorry. Again, see the new theory show, November 29, 2020, stating that he cannot disclose his single biggest score at this time. In describing his plan to attack, and we redacted the name, it was an individual who's going to attack, Another incident not recorded in Mr. Panisi's 3500, so that means the defense was not aware of this. We only found out about this during the podcast. Again, have to be aware of all those things. Has to be full transparency when you're um, going through the 3500 and 302s on a witness. The defense has to be aware of everything impacting that witness's character, crimes they may have committed, all things of that nature. Mr. Panisi noted that while it did not come to fruition, he stalked his target every day, first at a pizzeria and then at a Chinese restaurant, regarding the presence of said individual, who is not regarded as dangerous. Mr. Panisi's characterized him and any injuries he would suffer, even death, as collateral damage. And we give the example that was on the Hootie and JC show, April 20th, 2021. During other podcasts, Mr. Panisi admitted that he was so paranoid about his life being in danger that he pointed his firearm at innocent civilians whom he initially perceived to be a threat to him and engaged in high-speed car chases with vehicles he presumed to be following him. Now, I just want to go back to this. This is where John Panisi talks about his mental issues. Mr. Panisi related during the April 8th, 2021 podcast that, quote, I have a chemical imbalance and I lack my serotonin levels are low. So it was always suggested to me that I take some kind of medication, especially when I was in prison. And I refused to do it because I didn't want anyone to talk about me. And I didn't want to be looked at as if 
it's looked at as a weakness, right? And I eventually, and I think they had me on packs. I don't, today, ever since I came home, I never continued with it, but maybe I should. So there he's admitting he was supposed to be on medication and he wasn't. Defense was not aware of that. Uh, now he goes on to talk about an incident where he almost shot a UPS guy. And there was an incident where I think it was a UPS guy or some kind of delivery guy went to go walk into the side by my house and I had the lights that came on except they were a little bit delayed. And by the time the lights came on, I had a pistol out pointed at the guy. I almost shot that guy. So here a uh, attempted murder almost took place that, again, the defense was not aware of, found out after trial. On the Bobby Luisi show, May 14th, he's quoted saying, I almost killed a UPS guy. I have like an 80 mile an hour because they pulled out and made a U-turn. I spun around again and now I'm chasing them through Levittown. So he's also talking about this high speed 80 mile an hour chase that he had through Levittown, which again, was not aware of this event and would have been caused to explore and investigate. During a June 20th, 2021 podcast, Mr. Panisi disclosed that in 1989, while he was on pretrial release in connection with a homicide charge, he had carried a firearm and conspired with his co-defendant, uh, redacted the name, to kill, again, redacted the name. If they're meeting with this person to discuss a rumor that Mr. Panisi had been smacked by, we uh, redacted that, purportedly in regard to Mr. Panisi being bailed while this individual's brother remained in custody in the case had not gone as they had hoped. We arrived, we got there a little early, you know, looked around, we parked, I turned to this person, I told him, take the safety off the gun, I did the same, we put bullets in the chambers, and I told him, if this person blinks wrong, we shoot him. And once again, just for the record, this is back in 1989, and I was totally living my life in a different way back then. Uh, the Sit Down News Podcast, June 20th, 2021. Regarding firearms, Mr. Panisi acknowledged during a March 28, 2021 podcast that he had previously, previously disposed of firearms by throwing them off a bridge, and he also suggested melting a firearm as a way to dispose of such evidence. And that was said on the NBA and Button Man. When I had gotten in trouble myself many, many years ago, we had to get rid of the weapons, and we, we threw them off a bridge. You could melt them. There's a lot of things you could do with them. Now, here he goes into some other crimes he was committing that the defense was not aware of, wasn't part of the 3500 or the 302s. In addition, Mr. Panisi conceded he had gauged in other fraudulent conduct. During a March 16, 2021 podcast, he recounted that he had made false statements and committed fraud in connection with a car lease and reporting on the loan application fictional employment at a restaurant owned by a friend's wife. And that was on the NBA Button Man podcast, March 16, 2021. I had prior to that made this individual put down that I work in his wife's restaurant and I put that same information on the lease because at the time I wasn't working. So there you have an instance of fraud and deception. He's putting false information on applications. Uh, again, weren't aware of that. The defense would have liked to investigate that, examine on that, cross-examine on that, bring that up to the jury to paint character. So I had to put some kind of a, you know, some kind of employment down. Mr. Panisi elaborated that in connection with that fraudulent episode, he had orchestrated with another person an assault on a lawyer engaged by the restaurant 
to handle a credit inquiry it had received relating to Mr. Panisi's mother. Recalling that situation, Mr. Panisi explained that they contacted this person's wife through the business asking if my mother works there. They crossed it up and instead of my name, they put it to her name and thought that maybe she was there. Mr. Panisi told this person, you paid a lawyer? You know, and he says his name, this lawyer took 1500 from you. He robbed you. Mr. Panisi's proposed solution was illuminating in a manner the jury never had an opportunity to consider. I said, so why don't we get in the car right now? Let's go grab this lawyer and I'll grab him and I'll tell him that go in your pocket and I want him to give you 1500 back. Me and you, let's go right now. Let's grab this lawyer. And I wanted to also highlight another, uh, another crime that the defense was not aware of. During a May 23rd, 2021 podcast, Mr. Panisi also elaborated on his trial testimony about his involvement in a scheme to export cars illegally to China that involved elaborate acts of deceit, including filling out loans or leases or whatever may be the case, and then being shipped to China. So he divulged a lot more on the podcast in comparison to his trial testimony, and we give both citations so the judge could compare the two. According to his post-trial account, Panisi had also personally threatened and attempted to extort a car dealership in relation to that conspiracy. Mr. Panisi recounted that he had taken a cell phone from the owner's partner after the altercation took place, and it was ringing, and he kept looking at the phone, and I basically said here, you know, here's your, you can take your phone, you could even call the FBI if you want. I says, because when the FBI comes and gets us, there's going to be more guys that are going to come here and come get you. And when they come and get them, there's going to be more guys that are going to come and grab you somewhere else. And it's never going to end. So again, much different than your trial testimony. Much more details that were expressed after trial that could have been explored and investigated from the defense. Here's segment F. It's Mr. Panisi's flight after committing a homicide. During multiple podcasts, aired April 7th, 2021, April 24th, 2021, March 11th, and March 18th, 2021, Panisi revealed that the Gambino family was directly involved in providing him aid in escaping from authorities after he had committed murder in 1989. Again, an important aspect of the trial. That would have been very important to know that, that people were hiding him could have been explored and talked about. Panisi further described how the alleged boss of the Gambino family had given permission to other members of the enterprise to harbor Mr. Panisi at the time. And we give the exhibit, which is on the podcast, NBA and Button Man. In 89, the Gambinos put me on the lam. Well, this guy, and he mentions his name, asked permission from somebody else. You had to get permission to move me around, and he got permission, and they put me up in Troy. And we give the uh, exhibit to that, which was on the podcast. In order to avoid the authorities in his arrest, Mr. Panisi utilized his contacts and relationships with LCN and its members and engaged in an elaborate and coordinated deceit to escape detection. Again, we give the exhibit. And he got permission, and they put me up in Troy. We were saying we were going to college. NBA Muttman podcast. This person of the Gambino family helped put me on the lam. He helped me and my co-defendant go on the lam. Mr. Panisi fled from justice other times as well, including at some point after 20, 2007, hiding himself in a garbage container to... <laughs> oh, shit. In a garbage container to avoid capture from the police after he had assaulted an individual. 
That was said on New Theory Show, November 29, 2020. I'm really running from the cops. Something had just happened, and I hit a guy in a in a place in Massapequa, and we ran to the restaurant. And I actually ran out into the back of the restaurant and jumped into a garbage dumpster to hide. These guys are always jumping into things. Rivers, garbage dumpsters. <laughs> but, but anyway, more seriously... Again, this is an assault that defense was not aware of. This was evading police. The defense was not aware of. All things that are necessary for a proper defense to cross-examine an informant, to bring to light to the jury the character of the individual, and to break through the facade that the government wants to put on, that these are people who are law-abiding and they were put in a bad situation and they just want to do right and all that nonsense. This goes on to talk about his account of uh, segment G. This is Mr. Panisi's account of the homicide, of the Meldish homicide. Now, this was highlighted because during trial, he had nothing to say about the Meldish homicide. He just said he knew nothing about it, had no information. Yet on the podcast, he went a little more deeper than that. So his trial testimony once again contradicts the podcast. Although he was not involved in the Meldish homicide during certain podcasts, Mr. Panisi, while disclaiming any first-hand knowledge, did provide a version of the background based on either what he heard or his personal knowledge. So these things were divulged on podcasts, but were never brought up on trial when asked. Uh, New Theory Podcast, he says, I have no knowledge of who was involved and who planned, who, who planned it and all of that. Mr. Panisi explained that there are a few things that happened with Michael Meldish that, you know, ultimately caused his demise. And one of them was he was dating a girl that somebody else, and if anybody don't know who this is, this person is the, uh, he gave him a position of the Bonanno family, and he had interest, obviously, too, in that girl, and he was away at the time now. And Michael Meldish was not away. He was out, and he was dating this girl. And a message was sent to him about, Possibly, you know, you know, stay away from her, whatever way it was sent. So he's telling a story how this Michael Meldish was apparently dating somebody who had a position in an organized crime family. He was dating their girlfriend. So he's setting the tone that this could have possibly been a part of this. But either way, it's an important reference that would needed to be explored and to be investigated and understood properly and vetted. It was something that would have been important. Uh, another point of contention with Mr. Panisi, which is important, Mr. Panisi, who's uh, supposedly a made member, was a made member in the Lucchese family, has said on a podcast that he was unaware of this supposed alias Wonderboy with respect to Mr. Crea. And had Mr. Panisi ever, and nor had Mr. Panisi ever heard anyone refer to Mr. Korea by that nickname. And we give the transcript of the Sit Down News podcast, which is August 3rd, 2021. He says, I don't know, I never heard anyone call Stevie Wonderboy. Now that's important because, as you know, during trial, the way it played out, they brought in, they had this informant, David Evangelista, who we're going to get to. David Evangelista had told a story that Christopher Londonio supposedly confessed to him. Now, mind you, he met him like 
20-something days, I believe. I, I got to look at the exact, but he didn't know this guy long, and he supposedly confessed and gave him his whole life story. But anyway, that's something to dive into later on. But David Evangelista's claim to fame was he said that Londonio referred to Stephen L. Cree as Wonder Boy. He said, oh, Wonder Boy, uh, Stevie Wonder Boy got bail, had to do with bail. But the important part of that is David Evangelista used the term Stevie Wonder Boy and tried to say that Christopher Londonio used that term. Now, this was a big part of contention because in all of the audios, thousands and thousands of audios, never once did anybody refer to him as Wonder Boy. So it was pretty obvious that Evangelista saw that nickname in a Gangland article that was actually in the in the uh, cell. The article was in the cell, and in the article it said Wonder Boy. So it's, for anybody who has common sense, they could understand he used that to try to fabricate this confession, but he made one mistake and referred to him as Wonder Boy. When nobody calls him that, you have a alleged made member saying nobody called him that. And yet, so how did the government overcome that? What they did at trial was they brought a witness f who has not been around since the 90s. This witness, Sean Richards, another winner, who uh, was brought into this trial, had nothing to do with the current charges. They brought him in to talk about what happened in the 90s that Stephen O'Crea already served his time for. This witness was part of another trial that he, uh, the defendant already served his time. They brought him back solely for the purpose of saying, oh yeah, people call them Wonder Boy. So they have one informant to support the lie of another informant. You see what they did there? They knew that it didn't exist anywhere. So how did they give Evangelista credibility for a statement about Wonder Boy? They brought in another lying informant to back up the lie of, that, of David Evangelista. So that's what they did there, and that's what we're exposing and we're trying to show that that's exactly what they did. They tried to give Evangelista credibility by bringing in another informant who had nothing to do with this trial, wasn't around since the 90s, and they brought him in just to say, oh yeah, that's his nickname, which again, doesn't exist anywhere else, isn't on any recording, nobody ever referred to him as that, so they used that. I tell you the truth, this went longer than I anticipated, so I'm going to make this a part series. I'll break down the other two informants and their part in the Rule 33 in different uh, episodes. So this will be the Rule 33 as it relates to John Panisi. A um, couple of funny things. I noticed the, the trolls are intensifying. Well, I shouldn't call them trolls. They're super fans of these informants. They're intensifying. They're getting really banged up. I noticed a lot of super fans are uh, trying to make disparaging comments, trying to go into live chats. They're really trying to counteract the pushback. You know what that tells me? They just showed us their cards. Everybody who's on board to expose these lying informants, well, the super fans just showed us their cards. It's getting to them. So they could scream, they could cry, they could whine, they could go get their gold stars from the lying informants that they align with. They could look like the good boys who fought against those uh, who are part of pushing back, they're fighting for their favorite informant, here's the bottom line. We got to keep doing what we're doing. All that does is fire me up, that motivates me, and that makes me spotlight the informants that they in line with. Because little by little, we're going to start exposing more and more. I keep telling you it's the tip of the iceberg, and that's exactly what it is.
And if you haven't already, go to WePushBack.com, check it out. Try to subscribe to all the members of that. Uh, just a group of people who are sick of these lying informants and the damage they're doing. And at the very least, we, they should at least tell the truth. They owe that to the public. And when they lie and somebody's life is on the line, it's unacceptable. They have to be truthful and they're not being truthful. And we're going to keep showing that. So next episode, I'll get to David Evangelista. Then we'll get to Frank Pesquad III. This will be a three-part series, I guess. I didn't realize how long this was going to be. So I'm going to make it a three-part series because nobody wants to sit here for hours on end with this. I don't even want to do it for hours on end. So... I believe that's it. WePushback.com. The We Pushback squad. Let's keep going. Let's keep building. We added a new member. Again, if you want to be included, just drop me an email. Podcast at JusticeTechPros.com. I'll look at the site. Make sure it's in line with what we're doing. And that's it. We're going to keep going. Lots more to come. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off